God is good. All the time. We need to remember that. You know, it's great to have uh, the opportunity of getting together and worshiping like this, and it's really great sometimes when we have friends drop in that, uh, that we weren't sure they were going to get to be here or not. John Hulet, one of our missionaries, uh, he's a missionary to Japan, is here with his father, who I believe is now living in the VA hospital. Stan, John, great to have you here. The Lord bless you. Every time you give a dollar, some of that dollar goes to our missions, and we just, we Praise the Lord for what John's doing. Uh, had an, just an incredible impact on Japan after the, the huge disaster that they had several years ago. And he continues to work some, with some of the churches in that area with the, where the nuclear meltdown was, where the tsunami came through. Uh, we, just, we just praise the Lord for what God is doing right now uh, in, through John and, and his wife, Eriko. And I just pray that you'll continue to lift them and, and hold them and, and uh, pray for them. If you have a Bible today, turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We've been looking at a, at a series called uh, Follower. Very simple, just follower. Are you following Jesus? And you say, of course I am, Pastor. And we've already gone over this a couple of weeks. Well, we still have some things to look at. And today we're talking about exclusive. Exclusive. What does that mean? Uh, well, I looked up in, in Webster's Dictionary the, the term exclusive, and it means not adm- admitting other people or things. Uh, it's restricted to a person or a group or an area concerned. Sometimes you, you can go into a hotel and you have a group and you want to have a room, and they say, we will give you exclusive use of this banquet room. And what that means is there's not going to be other people mingling with your group and you can have a, a business time or a, a family time. It's exclusive. If you have an exclusive interview, you go and you talk with somebody one-on-one, and you're the only source that publishes it. It's not going to be, you know, you're not going to be on ABC and CBS and NBC and Fox and CNN and on and on. It's exclusive. Only that one person has that interview. It's just, it's limited to that one. We have exclusive relationships. I, I, I guess the most exclusive relationship you could possibly have would be a marriage. I, I mean, if you think about it, you're, you're, the wedding vows say leaving all others and clinging or cleaving only to this one. And so it becomes exclusive between that couple, that man and that wife, that, that, that husband and that wife, that man and that woman. They're exclusive in their relationship. And in the Bible, if you look all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, God makes it clear that he's exclusive. What does it say? You shall have several other gods. No, it doesn't say that. You shall have no other gods before me. God was very clear with Israel. He's very clear with us that he doesn't share you with other gods. He wants to have an exclusive relationship with you. And to follow Jesus means to follow Jesus exclusively. And you say, well, this is going to be simple because I've got this. Really? Are you sure? Do you know for sure that you're following just Jesus, that you're a follower of Jesus. And you say, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure. How can I know? I'm glad you asked that because that's the first question that we're going to ask today. How can I know who or what I'm serving? How can I know that I'm exclusive with Jesus Christ? And we're going to look at a story that Jesus, about Jesus where Jesus is speaking. And frankly, this is one of those passages that a whole lot of people wish weren't in the Bible. 
And you're going to see exactly what I mean. In Luke chapter 14, look at verse 25. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. We're, we're far enough into the life of Christ where it's not just the disciples. It's not just a few people. Large crowds. We know there were 5,000 fed at one time, 5,000 men plus their families. Probably 12, 15, 20,000. And, and another time there were 4,000 men plus their families. So we're talking not, not just little church-sized crowds, but we're talking massive amounts of crowd. And look what it says. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone, and again, by that, that's really inclusive. If you have a large crowd and you say, anybody here, anyone, he's not limiting. This is not just the disciples. This is not just Peter, Paul, and, and, and you know, and John, and, and you know, it's, it's not just James and John and, and Peter. It's everybody. If anyone comes to me and this is the part we don't like. And does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. I wish he hadn't said that. I mean, that's what you're thinking. I, I, you know, I'm glad he said it, but you'll see why in a minute. Look at the next verse. And anyone who does not carry his cross. Earlier in another passage, he says, take up your cross. Here he says, I want you to carry it. I want you, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Look at verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. The tower he's talking about here is not just, you know, just go out and build a random tower. Agrarian society, they had sheep many times, and the wolves would come in and get the sheep, or they had pasture, or they, they had some uh, crops out there, and people would come and steal the crops, and so they would literally put a hut, and above the hut, they would put a place where they could climb up and see the whole field to see if the sheep were being taken by the wolves or if the crops were being taken. So you want to build a tower, he says. Will he not sit, first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if, if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. We could go on. He's talking about war, and, then, and he's going to talk about salt and the savor. But I want to stop here for just a minute because we get what we need out of, out of just this part, and we could, we could spend a lot more time with this. But I just want to see three things here and, and three questions that you need to ask yourself because if, if you're sure you know who, that you're following, how can you know that? Here's the first question. How do I spend my money? He talks about, do you know the cost? Did you, did you figure the cost up front of what it's going to take? I mean, you would do that something as simple as a tower. Have you figured the cost of following Jesus? And you say, well, you know, Pastor, you just had this whole thing about Jesus paid it all, and he, and he went to the cross, and he, that's right, salvation was free. Your grace, the, the grace that God gave you, didn't cost you anything. But when you came out of grace to Jesus Christ, and you believed in him, and you began to walk with him, there is a cost associated. How do you spend your money? There's a realistic estimate of ultimate personal cost. And, and as Jesus had these huge crowds coming in, and he's very inclusive, all of a sudden he says this, you need to hate your father and your mother and your, your child and, and your, your, your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters. I, think of it this way, do I have to hate my nana, my Grams, my granny, my Grammy, my Mima, my Mimi, my Mama. I was just going through all the names for grandma there. 
grandmother. You got that? You want me to do grandfather? We could do papa. You want me to do pops? You, you understand? Am I supposed to hate my nana? You know, there's a lot of people that really struggle with this. There are a couple of great Bible scholars. Dr. John Nolan has written a, a commentary on Luke, and he points out that hate is a typical Semitic, uh, Semitic hyperbole. And, and he says, listen, he's, he's using typical Jewish thought process here, and, and don't get thrown by this. And there's another scholar by the name of Dr. Walter Liefeld, who has also written a commentary, and he calls it comparative language. And what he's saying is that you love Jesus Christ so much. I mean, you love it so much that it appears you hate everything in comparison to that. That you love him so much. We have, obviously, Maggie passed on several years ago, but we have other dogs. We, we have two dogs. We have Bogart and we have Buddy that live with us right now. This morning we were eating breakfast. I normally have scrambled eggs with a little Canadian bacon. I, I don't want to hear about cholesterol. I just, I just do. But the dogs know when I get the Canadian bacon out that I cut one piece for them into eight parts. And there's two of them, so each get four. And Kathy had, she was eating something else. She was eating a bagel this morning. And as she was eating the bagel, she said to Bo, would you like a bite of bagel? And he went over and sniffed it. And he came back and sat there and he said, no, he has Canadian bacon. (laughs) Bo loves bagels. But in comparison to meat, it was nothing. It was like he hated the bagel. And the Lord says, in comparison to Jesus Christ, you love him so much, everything else just completely goes off the radar for you. That's what he's talking about. We know that we're not supposed to hate our family because in, in Matthew 19, 19, it says, honor your father and mother. Jesus never contradicts himself. He's very clear that he says that we're to love our family. We're to, we're to cherish the family that God has given us. In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, he says, you're to love your neighbors as yourself. He, he says, you know, there he says that you're supposed to hate your very life. And he says, do you not understand the, 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 you're supposed to love your neighbor, and the, and the example that he gives us is loving ourselves. We're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, so we're not supposed to hate ourselves or our family. There's another scholar that says that in the Jewish culture, following Jesus without the family's blessing is viewed as hating your family. You know, we showed the movie God's Not Dead, and in that movie there's a a Muslim man and his family, and the girl comes to know Jesus Christ, and the Muslim man throws his daughter out of the home. He loves his daughter, and he doesn't want to do it, but, but he does not want her to follow Jesus. And when she says, Daddy, I have to, Papa, I have to follow Jesus. He throws her out of the house, and then he comes up the stairs, and he, and he falls down, and he, and he weeps because of the cost to him. That movie's got a lot of criticism because of that, but that's, that's really a picture today around the world. In, in parts of this world, if you come to know Jesus Christ, your family will divorce you. They will, they will act as if you're dead. And they consider that you hate them in comparison to Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what does this have to do with how I spend my money? Because it's the cost. What does it cost you? What has it cost you to follow Jesus Christ? What in the world has it cost you personally to follow him? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is speaking again. says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And then goes on a couple of verses later in verse 24 to say, you, you can't serve God and money. You, you say, where do you spend your money? Where's the biggest check that you write every month? Can you find satisfaction? Does it, does it come with a price tag? Can you have it delivered by Amazon Prime? Can you order it up on Amazon and have it delivered to your house? It bothers me a little bit that our UPS guy knows us by name. And he says, another one from Amazon? It's like, okay. And I would say that we're all guilty in that. And, and, and is that where we're trying to get our satisfaction? I was talking to someone not long ago, not someone here in the church. And, and he was, he, I just happened to be at a lunch, a pastor's lunch. And he was saying, yeah, we're looking at a new house. And we, we went and we figured out what was the maximum that we could spend on a house with our income. And what's interesting is I went from that and had somebody that called the church, again, not a member of the church, they called the church and they wanted to talk to me for a minute, and, and I was talking to them and, and I said, hello, and they said, are you the pastor? I said, yeah, and they said, well, listen, we need you to answer a, a question. My husband and I were arguing about this. We don't go to church there, but can you answer this question? Sure, what's the question? And they said, should we tithe on the gross before the taxes or after the net? Should, should we tithe on the, the whole amount before the taxes or afterwards? So I had somebody say, what's the most I can spend on the house? And within just a few hours, I had somebody call me and say, what's the least that I can give to God? And that's the way we live our life. And the second question, where do I go for comfort? Because he, he talks about our family, and, and so many times our family is our comfort. You know, I hope you love your parents. I, I hope you love your spouse. And some of you don't find your comfort there. Sometimes your comfort's found in the mall or in your work or in food. And, and I have to confess, the Red Robin Royal Burger you, you all know what I'm talking about. Red Robin has burgers that are just killer. The Red Robin Royal Burger, you get the whole cheeseburger with all the stuff, and they can even put bacon on it, and then they take an egg, and it's sunny side up, and they put it right on top, so when you bite down into all that goodness, that little bit of a yolk just kind of runs down your chin. Yeah, I know, some of you don't like eggs, but I'm, I'm having a hard time right now. I'm thinking we need to pray and just go to Ro Red Robin right now. I mean, if you have that and the, and the bottomless fries and a chocolate shake, that's better than a mother's warm embrace. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you see what I'm saying? And you say, well, pastor, that's a terrible thing to say. I'm just saying it's all. I mean, that's just, no. That's not where I get my comfort. You see, we think that, that all of our different loves line up for this race of life, and, and it may be your, your mother and your father or food or, or shopping or whatever it is, they all line up, and they're all in a race, and at the end of the race, Jesus edges them all out, and you say, see, I told you I was following Jesus, and, and the Lord says, that's not what I'm looking for. Jesus wants to be the only one on the track. He wants to be the only one that's running the race that you're following. And we miss that. And we bury ourselves in our work or, or in something else. Uh, I read a story, a true story this week. There was a little kindergarten boy, and, 
And the first day of kindergarten, he didn't want to go to school. He hated school. He was never going to love school. It was a horrible place. And he went to school, and he, when he came back, his mother was afraid to come pick him up. But when she picked him up, he came out with this huge grin on his face. And she said, honey, how did it go? He said, I loved it. My teacher is the smartest person in the world. She is awesome. And he just went on, teacher said this, and teacher said that. And, it, and day after day, it just got bigger. I mean, this teacher was the most awesome person. He would get up early to be ready to go to kindergarten. I mean, it, he just loved kindergarten. And the mom got a little jealous. And so it came parents' night, and, and she came to the school and she's talking to the teacher, and she realized she was a young, wonderful teacher and loved the kids, and, and she was thrilled that her son was there. And the teacher said, let's go out and let the kids play on the playground for a while while we're waiting for the other classes to get done. And they were out there, and the little boy fell. He had shorts on, and he scraped his knee, and there was a little, just a little trickle of blood coming down his knee, and he came running over, and guess who he went to? Mom, Mom. And the Lord says, when you've lost your job, when your relationship is broken beyond repair, when, when, when the test results come back and they say it's cancer, it's, it's inoperable, when, when you have this unimaginable pain, who do you run to? Who do you go to? Where do you find your comfort? John 4 is talking to, he's talking to this woman at the well and she comes and he talks about her five husbands and she's living with a sixth. And, and he says, listen, you've tried to find your comfort in all these things and I'm going to offer you this living water that will spring up into eternity in you. And you'll never thirst again. Or as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your care, your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He wants to comfort you. He loves you. And here's a third question. What excites me most? Where, where do I spend my money? Where, where do I go for comfort? And what excites me most? We could look at this from the opposite. I, I started to do that where, you know, uh, what is it that disappoints me most? What frustrates me most? Sometimes when we're overwhelmed with disappointment or, or the negative, it, it, it reveals something that maybe is too important in our lives. Years ago, I was a, a huge baseball fan. I, I grew up in Kansas City. I went to the Kansas City A's. I really did before they came out and Charlie Finley stole them from Kansas City and brought them to some lousy place in California. I loved the A's and then they, they were stolen out and then this Ewan Kaufman guy came in and he, and he had the Kansas City Royals. They were much better than the A's anyway and I, man, I went to the games and I really got involved and there was this guy named George Brett and he was doing great and they were getting in the playoffs. You understand this is a long time ago. And one night, they were in the playoffs, and they blew it, and they lost the game. And I couldn't sleep that night. And the next day, I woke up, I was grouchy, and I went to work, and I thought, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Uh, we, I had a breakfast this week. I was talking with uh, Roger Ingham, and I think he was the one that mentioned that he had heard that when the San Diego Chargers lose a game, the sales in San Diego the next week are down. People don't buy as much stuff because they're so depressed that their team didn't win. And from the positive, it would be if, if someone said to you, I've never seen you so excited. You know what? When you saw that, that just your face just lit up. Your face just, I, you know, I, I, I see what that reveals. But when is that? When do you get the most excited? At a football game or a baseball game? Do you get it maybe at the birth of a child or a grandchild or 
I, I have to tell you one of the most emotional times that I ever have in my life is when we baptize. We've done it out at Whiskey Town. We did it just in this baptistry. But when I see someone who comes and says, I've decided to follow Jesus and, and my life has changed so much that I, I, I want to tell everybody. And, and, I, and, and I just think it's amazing. They invite their friends and their relatives and their neighbors and they all come out and I see the joy on their face and, and it drives me to tears every time. I can't baptize without crying because it's so exciting. In Luke chapter 14 just before we get to this passage in verses 15 through 24, you can read it later, but Jesus tells the parable of the, of the great feast. And he has this great feast and he invites all the people to come and they, they make one excuse after another. You know, I, I would come, but I've got this new cow. I would come, but, you know, I need to go do this family thing. I, I would come, but I've got all of these other things. And, he, and Jesus, it says he is furious and he says, go out and find those who want to be with me. What excites you the most? Do you love it when you're with Jesus Christ? Do you love it when you're reading his word? Do you love it when you're singing his songs? Do you love it when you see someone who goes forward in their Christian life and, and you see that light come on in their eyes? Do you love that? Would you want reluctant guests at your party? Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 says this in a loud voice. This is a picture of what's happening around the throne room of God. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It talks about the 24 elders. It talks about the angels. It talks about those who are surrounding Christ, those who are the believers in Jesus Christ who surround the throne. And I think it's so loud you can't even hear yourself think this, this huge volume of sound. You know, we just don't get that. And, and I think sometimes we think what excites me the most is, is something here on this earth. And I think the Lord is, wants us to be exclusive. Over 39 years ago, I, I married my wife, Kathy. And I took her to be my wife. And I, and I love my wife with all of my life. And what I said to her is, I want to marry you, but I still want to see other women. No, I didn't. I got news for you. I'd had a couple of girlfriends, but I didn't line their pictures up behind her picture in my wallet. You know, I, I didn't stay in contact with them. I, I, you know, I put them behind because I'm exclusive to one person, to my wife that I love with all that I am. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God says, I will not share you with another lover. I will not share you with anyone else. So my question is, who do you serve? Where do you spend your money? Where do you find your comfort? What excites you the most? Who do you follow? And how can I acknowledge then, if I know that, that maybe I have a struggle with this, how can I acknowledge that Jesus, uh, how can I acknowledge Jesus as exclusive in my life? Let's go to Romans. It says 13 in your notes, but I was just fooling you. It's actually 14 because I'm not good with typing. That's a typo. Romans chapter 14, I want to just look at a couple of verses and we'll close with this. Romans chapter 14 verse 7 says this, For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. This is not about us. This is not about our life. We don't live, to our li uh, live alone. We don't die alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. 
And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, now look at this next phrase, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul is, is, is finishing up an argument that he started all the way back in Romans 1. He's fin- finishing up this thought process that he, it's one of the most exciting thought processes, but it's one of the longest ones that he's had. And look what happens in verse 10. Why then, uh, you then, why do you judge your brother or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You don't have to be busy judging other people. God's going to do it in the end anyway. What is he saying? How can I acknowledge Jesus as exclusive in my life? Number one, acknowledge that you belong to Jesus. Every now and then I hear somebody use this phrase, I want to make Jesus Lord and Savior of my life. Now I know what they mean, and I understand where they're coming from, but technically that's impossible. You can't make Jesus Lord. Hold on to your place in Romans, and and let's go over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Philippians 2, 9. It says, therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus Christ. He's the one who's emptied himself and made himself of no reputation. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, grasped. Look at this again, verse 9. Therefore God exalted Jesus Christ, him, to the highest place and gave him, that's Christ, the name that is above every name. It is the name, but it represents everything that he is, the character, the quality, the perfection, the power. It's not just a name, it's what the name represents. But look at what it says, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ will be Lord? No, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The truth, folks, is that Jesus is Lord. He created everything with a word. Jesus Christ is Lord. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he was raised again to prove that he is who he promised to be. You cannot make him Lord. He is Lord. He sustains every breath that I have and every heartbeat that I, that I have. He gives us love. He gives us grace. He gives us everything. He gives us every penny we've ever made. He gives us every relationship that we've ever built. He is Lord. And one day, even those who have rejected him will bow the knee at the power and the majesty, the Shekinah glory of God. They will come into his presence, and just sheerly because of who he is, they will fall before him and say, he is Lord. But what you can do right now is acknowledge that. You can submit to to him as Lord. Why? Because he's done everything. 
He's loved us. He created us. He died in our place. He brought us, bought us back from slavery. You remember last week, Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He's bought us back from that. He, he sustains us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? The third person of the Trinity resides within us, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The illustration that I used during communion when I was talking about this dog that we rescued, that we adopted, that we paid for, that dog belonged to us technically at that point. Because we bought that dog back when the dog would have died otherwise. And at the same point, God bought us back when we should have died. And we can acknowledge that. But see, here's the problem. We're okay with Jesus as long as we get to kind of modify him. We can pick and choose what we like about him and what we don't. We take the biblical Jesus, we kind of twist him into something, someone with whom we're comfortable we pick and choose what we like about Jesus' teaching. Oh, I, I don't like that he says that about you know, my, my mother and my father and my, my wife and my children. I don't like that kind of a passage, so I'm just going to kind of ignore it. You don't get that with, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. That's a cliche, but it's true. You don't get to do that. You can't create some nice, non-offensive, politically correct, middle-class American Jesus just like us. We don't get to do that because the power of God transforms us. He revolutionizes us from the inside out. And there are a lot of things that you're not going to like about the Bible. There's a, there's a movement today. There are several pastors who've come out and they've said, well, we know the Bible talks about hell, but we don't really think any loving God would ever send someone to hell. The problem I have with that is that Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven. In Luke 16, 19 through 31, he talks about conscious torment. He talks about darkness. He talks about separation from God. Uh, if, well, I, I ran across a biblical scholar who said it better than I, James Denny. If there's any truth in Scripture at all, this is, the, this is true. That those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel who refuse to love Jesus Christ, will incur, incur at the last advent an infinite and irreplaceable loss. They will pass into a night on which no morning dawns. You cannot personalize Jesus. He is Lord. And you may not like everything that you read, but he will transform your mind, my mind, through the truth. My assumptions, my beliefs, my convictions, those, those core things that I am, God says, I will come into your life and I will transform those. I will revolutionize those if you give them to me. God comes into our life and he transforms our love with his love. God is love, we're told. And his love, when it pours into our life, transforms the way we love. And it's no longer selfish, it's selfless. And God will transform our purpose and our meaning, and our peace, and our joy, all of these things, but only when we acknowledge that he is Lord, and we submit to him as Lord. Here's the last one. Acknowledge that your life is in Jesus. It's found in him. It, it's bound in him. It's, it's all that you are. It, your life can never be the same. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Almost every Sunday morning, now, I have some music that I like to listen to as, I'm, as we're having breakfast, as we're getting ready. And um, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, I, for I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. That song just blows me away. And the thought that we can come dead and be raised to life in Jesus Christ, that we can be crucified with him and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if, if he didn't come back from the dead, then whatever he said is okay, but it's not something that's that big. But if he did come back from the dead, and he did, then all of our life should be oriented to what he says, to what he teaches, to how he loves, to how he wants us to live. Amid all of life's emptiness and uncertainty, Jesus invites me to accompany him on an incredible journey toward a meaningful life secure future, the power to significantly impact the world around me. And I, I hear people talk about fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. I don't find that in Scripture. You're either a follower or you're not. And you have to be exclusive. I said before, 39 and a half years, over 39 years ago, I, I married this woman that I love with all of my life. Kathy changed me forever. If you saw pictures of me in college, you would think he didn't have a lot of style. I have wide feet, but everybody was wearing boots, so I thought I had some boots that were pretty cool, and they were just ugly. And my wife never said, those boots are ugly. But she would say to me, you know, you might want to wear this with that. And you know, honey, those two colors don't work so much. And those two patterns don't work so much. And I grew up not liking cheese, and now cheeseburgers, mmm. And I, and I grew up with a mom who put food on the table, and it was good nourishing food, but she didn't really love food. And my wife, she's an incredible chef and cook and baker. And, and my life has been changed every day by the wonder of this woman. And if that's true in, in, in just a little bit, then even more than that, 55 years ago, I met this man named Jesus Christ. And I was just a little boy. I was just literally in kindergarten. And, and that, that transaction, what happened to me, changed everything in my life. I was, the one thing I said is I will never be a pastor because my dad was a pastor and I didn't want to do that. God gave me a love for people and a love for his word and a love to do the things that would honor him. And when I heard the call and I knew when I went to Calvary Bible College that he wanted me to do that, it changed everything in my life. I'll close with this illustration. I like movies. I've admitted that before. There's a movie that was a remake in 1995, I believe. It was called Sabrina, Harrison Ford, uh, Julia Ormond. And she's a chauffeur's daughter, and, and he's this rich guy that's all wrapped up in business and life, and he doesn't, you know, he just ignores her, and she goes away to Paris for a couple of years or whatever and comes back, and of course it's the, it's the, the uh, caterpillar and the butterfly. She's beautiful when she comes back, and she has all these wonderful clothes, and, and, uh, and he comes, she comes back, and he's just trying to keep his brother from being distracted, he thinks, but he falls in love with Julia Ormond, Harrison Ford does. 
And he's willing to give up all of his control of his business and all of the money that he's had. He's, he's willing to do all of that. And finally, she gets brokenhearted because she realizes that, that he doesn't know what love is all about. And so she goes back to Paris. And the movie closes with him coming to Paris to find her. And he's dropped everything. He's left the business. He's left everything to his brother who is not a very good businessman. And he's, and he's chucked it all to find this woman. And he, and he walks up to her in, in the closing scene and he says, Help me, Sabrina. You're the only one who can save me. It's a great love story. Except one even better than that. is when you leave everything and you find Jesus Christ and you say... Help me, Jesus. You're the only one who can save me. And from that moment on, you start life's ultimate adventure as a follower. Would you pray with me? What an incredible God you are, Father. You loved us when we were unlovable. You never ignored us. You didn't wait. We were worth so much, and yet we're worth so little. And we have failed you over and over, and we frustrate you, and we hurt you, and we need you, and you still love us. And when we weren't worthy to be called slaves, you called us friends, according to John fifteen fifteen. You loved us and said, I want you to know everything the Father has given to me. And Father, we still don't follow. And we find someone else to follow, something else to follow, and we give our money and our comfort and our excitement to that. And forgive us. Help us, Jesus. You're the only one who can save us. Help us to live for you, to love you, to walk with you, to be a follower. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If, uh, we're going to sing a closing song. If you want to know more about what I'm talking about, you can come and you can sit on one of these chairs in the front. Uh, this is not about having you join a church. It's not about you. Uh, it's not about other things. This is about coming to the point where you know who Jesus Christ is and, and loving him and making a commitment to him. So if you want to come and know anything more spiritually, come sit on the front, uh, one of these front chairs. One of the deacons, one of their wives will come and pray with you.